welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and here is my co-host Morgan. Hello. So this week we have a very exciting Halloween theme for you. We have watched the film Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice, directed by Neil Jordan, which is really artistically such an experience. We had a lot of fun watching this film <laughs> independently. I, in fact, watched this half an hour ago and I'm still in the throes of that. <laughs> just So the general gist of this movie, um, if you have not read the novels or watched the movie, I, I believe, Morgan, you've not read the books. No. Yeah, me neither. I think I read like one of the books when I was like 12, but I have no memory of what happened. So um, basically, this is a very histrionic vampire movie, which is kind of told somewhat through an interview, as you might might guess from the title, with um, the protagonist vampire, who's a character named Louis, um, played by Brad Pitt, and his relationship with a very classic vampiric vampire character called Lestat, um, played by Tom Cruise, who is like the kind of key infamous character of Anne Rice's um, vampire Lestat novels. And also um, Kirsten Dunst plays sort of their daughter, who is a child vampire. They vampirize halfway through the movie. And structurally speaking, it's kind of a meandering autobiography kind of story, because it really does just sort of move through um, Louis Brad Pitt's life throughout the sort of 18th to 20th centuries but essentially it is a sort of classic tale of self-absorbed gothic vampire types being terrible to each other um, and killing a lot of people and wearing a lot of voluptuous outfits there's a lot of satin involved and it's highly entertaining supporting roles by Kristen Slater and uh, Antonio Banderas there's a lot happening in this film and we yes. both enjoyed it for very similar reasons, which are not 100% tied to the concept of quote-unquote quality. Yeah. So I saw this movie for the first time last year when I was sort of binge-watching a bunch of similar films for an article I was writing and was astounded by it on many levels and then watched it again last night with um, a mutual friend of ours who had not seen it before, and she was literally losing her mind the entire time <laughs> which was very entertaining for me also like I I really enjoyed it the first time but I had a great time watching it with someone else uh to our listeners I recommend this film with the group because it is just so inadvertently funny so we were all just screaming with laughter all the way through oh my god so the thing about this is that Anne Rice who is like famously a personality wrote the screenplay herself adapting her own novel which unless you are Gillian Flynn is basically a terrible idea like this almost never works out and she takes her own work very seriously you can tell from just the general tone and at one point I don't remember when in the movie but I said at one point to my friend it is so clear that she had an enormous amount of control over this production and like famously was not happy about the casting, which we'll go into later, but this was these were really popular books and she wrote the screenplay and like obviously had to have creative control in certain ways. Like I don't know the details, but I'm just assuming this. And I mean an unusual level of creative control. Yes. And there are just things in this where you think, what is happening? <laughs> like But she just taking it so seriously, it's clear that the people making it also like are doing this very earnestly. And I that don't is know, what right? Because like it... when I was watching this, I was like, the comical timing 
of like the direction. So Neil Jordan's the director and Tom Cruise's comical timing in this film is just hysterically funny. Like the way this is edited, I was just like, I mean, obviously there's a lot of it which is sort of funny in the way that sort of any sort of really intensive, sincere gothic romance is, is funny, but like there is no way that this was not sort of comedic as a result of Anne Rice's complete megalomaniacal self-confidence combined with a director slash cast who are like, lol. See, I think Tom, we'll see, so Tom Cruise is playing the like crazy vampire, right? And he's definitely supposed to be funny. Oh like, yeah. He's the, the, he the, the like so force intensive. Of, and yes. God, the, the final sequence with him. Oh. I was just, oh, it's so good. I was like, if, if there was ever a film where I was like, the sequel is necessary, I would watch just a whole sequel of Tom Cruise just being histrionic. And it would oh be so God. unnecessary, but so good. Ugh. I know. But I genuinely think that the people making the movie, like, think it's meaningful i don't know I mean, Neil- like it's very hard for me to because so like the director neil jordan i've not seen most of his work he has done some like serious material like he he has an oscar he did the crying game and various others however the stuff that i personally have watched is the borgias which is very much in the same tone as this which is sort of opulent catholic erotic melodrama um, this is less, less Catholic, obviously, because it's not about like a pope, but the concept of Gothic vampirism is intrinsically about like the tension between Catholic and Protestant values, which we don't need to go into now. But <laughs> but like, I feel like he he has like a sort of aura of camp that he understands. This feels less self-aware than the Borgias to me. That's just my take on it. The Borgias is 100% showtime pulp trash in a like enjoyable way right like he knows what he's doing and this i i don't know man i really think it's unself-aware so brad pitt spends this whole movie just looking constipated because he has suffering from an ethical dilemma oh my god it's so funny (laughs) so basically like what happens at the beginning of the movie is that like his wife has died. I don't even remember what has happened to her. Oh, like, they do not clarify. They're just like well, right. at the beginning matter. of the film. Like Brad Pitt is very depressed because his wife and child have been killed, and like Tom Cruise spots him and is like, "Here is a depressed, sexy goth." And I, I do kind of like there is like this inbuilt internal logic where the vampires only prey upon sexy goths and they're like we only want to make someone immortal if they're part of our kind so every single person who is a vampire is a a sexy goth and be a huge fucking idiot they've not like selected for intelligence or self-sufficiency so tom cruise is like okay i'm cruising around new orleans in like 1791 or whenever it is and he spots brad pitt and he's like here's someone who's lost his family He's miserable, he's self-destructive, he's got fantastic blow-dried 90s hair. I must have him at once. So he does, and there is no forethought whatsoever. And then for the rest of the entire film, there's no character development, because as a vampire, you cannot evolve or develop because you're trapped forever in your immediate, like, kind of mental time zone situation. So um, he's just a fucking dumbass. And, like, the thing I was thinking through this whole movie is, like, as Brad Pitt sort of kept pouting at the camera with his blow-dried hair and his misery, I was like, this is what would happen if Derek Zoolander was a vampire. (laughs) Oh my god, you are correct. He's so dumb. It's amazing. You just, you get to the point where you're just like, 
please do something, do anything, like make something happen. And he just, all he's capable of doing is setting fire to buildings. He sets so many buildings on fire. He gets upset about something and his only recourse is to burn a building down. Like that's his mental level of, of problem solving. <laughs> he has nothing else. That's it. It's just, it's astonishing. And so he is just like, spends the whole movie being like, I don't want to murder people. I don't want to murder people. And eventually the, he does The solution is so people. obvious because it's just like, only drink some of their blood and then leave them. Right. Which the is never solution. discussed as an option. <sighs> Comical. Whereas Tom Cruise is just like, I don't fucking care. I'm going to murder a bunch oh, of people because it's fun. Yeah. yeah. And so you have this like fake conflict between the two of them where Tom Cruise is running around having a grand old time killing people and Brad Pitt's just like standing in the corner with his beautiful hair just being like, oh. The wig situation in this is so puzzling because like Brad Pitt's blow-dried wig looks so false. Yet Tom Cruise is somehow to me, even though like intellectually I'm like, I know that Tom Cruise does not have long wavy blonde hair. It looks so real to me. It didn't. It did not look real to me, but no. it looked fake in a way that was. I like, I could easily enjoyable. accept Tom Cruise's hair, but with Brad Pitt's hair, I was like, "This is beyond the pale." <laughs> well, I think the difference is that everything about Lestat is so extra that you're it's like, true. "Yes, your like absurd blonde hair totally scans with everything that's going on with your whole look," whereas Brad Pitt's absurd wig is just like. This is nonsense. <laughs> I just, I just, it's unfortunate in Brad Pitt's part because he, he is literally the protagonist of the film and he has the worst role in the entire film. And there's also no reason for him to be so bad. Like, I'm not an expert in the books, but like there's this kind of quote that we found from Brad Pitt where he's kind of talking about his experience with this movie and basically he'd read the book and he was like, my role in the book is great. And then once he actually got the script, he was like, oh, okay. This I'm just going to read it yeah. because it's Mark, so Mark good. read out to me. It's, it's very depressing because I'm like, I, I tremendously sympathize with it because I also get like very bad seasonal affective disorder. And he's like, I was very depressed because I had to spend six months in the dark. <laughs> right. Yeah. So apparently, so he gave some interview to Entertainment Weekly in like 2011. This is all Wikipedia. Um, where he apparently tried to buy himself out of his contract while shooting. Which, which is like, insane. You can't do that. They didn't let him. And uh, described shooting as six months of fucking darkness because they were shooting at night the whole time. And it was the winter, so that was an extra level of like, misery. Uh, and it sent him into a depression. And so he had read the book and liked it, and then he got the script only a couple weeks before filming, and uh, it was bad, shockingly. <laughs> the dialogue and, in this film is, is so oh, much. Oh. And so the quote from him is, in the book you have this guy asking, who am I? which was probably applicable to me at the time. Am I good? Am I of the angels? Am I bad? Am I of the devil? Which is like a classic young Brad Pitt sort of quote. Love it. And then he goes on, in the book, it is a guy going on the search of discovery. And in the meantime, he has this Lestat character that he's entranced by and abhors. In the movie, they took the sensational aspects of Lestat and made that the pulse of the film. And those things are very enjoyable and very good. But for me, there was just nothing to do. You just sit and watch, which is indeed... All he does. It's literally, I was like, it's nuts. Right? It's like this film, first of all, it's like intensely homoerotic of a type that almost doesn't exist anymore because now people are more kind of self aware 
slash just you, you did just make like a gay film right yeah and this, this film is like there was like multiple scenes where people were saying like their lips are hovering above each other and stuff because they've got like the vampire eroticism but like they've just got this protagonist where instead of them having it be like a legitimate two-way relationship between brad pitt and tom cruise as lestat they've got him being literally the classic like shitty young adult novel protagonist where he's like this really passive role where he's meant to be the central character but his personality is virtually nothing. He doesn't really make any decisions on his own. He's like, oh no, I've been turned into a vampire and now I'm really sad because I don't want to murder anyone. But he like never takes any action. There's like multiple scenes where Tom Cruise is trying to like persuade him to murder people for blood reasons. And then he'll just sort of stand in the background and do nothing. Cause he's like, I don't want to do anything against him, but I don't want to do him for anything for him either. And he has no traits, really, but he's very beautiful. And there's actually, like, there's literally moments in the text where, like, another, like, ancient, incredible vampire played by Antonio Banderas will show up and be like, you're so beautiful. And it's like, well, I mean, we know that technically speaking, like, Brad Pitt is an attractive man, but it kind of seems like if you've got 400 years, you can just travel the world and find another attractive man who has a better personality, transform him into a vampire and keep him as your thrall instead. Like, it's just... He is a bad protagonist. You just have to accept that the beauty of Brad Pitt in 1994 was so overwhelming to everyone that it just all-consuming. That mean, is the driver handsome, of this film. But like, it, there's others available. I mean, Brad Pitt has never been like my personal favorite. But there are many shots of him in this movie where they have clearly just been like, how beautiful can we make Brad Pitt look? (laughs) And he does indeed look like the most beautiful man alive. It's just that he has nothing inside of him. I mean, I really appreciated that they had the makeup person was credited really high in the sort of the the initial credits, like at the beginning of the movie. And the, the the makeup is really good in this film, like the vampire makeup, but also interesting fact about the way they did the vampire makeup. They made... Tom and Brad and Kristen and the others hang upside down for half an hour before every makeup thing to make sure they got their veins painted on the right way because they've got to have their like blood vein situation going on. Um, so actually, it was pretty fucking technical. No wonder he was miserable. <laughs> yeah, horrible. you've got to hang upside down for half an hour, have someone paint your veins on, and then spend like you know eight to twelve hours filming a really fucking ridiculous histrionic romance scene with Tom Cruise. While, I must add, Tom Cruise is standing in a ditch because you've got to pretend that the two of you are the same no. height. While you're standing in a ditch. Oh, no, no, while well, you're standing yes. in a ditch. Yeah, no. <laughs> Brad has got to stand in the ditch here. This was the film, actually, this was a, as, as a personal fan of Celebrity Heights, as anyone who follows me on social media will know, I, this film really opened my eyes because I did not realize until watching this that Antonio Banderas is not tall. Antonio Banderas is shorter than Brad Pitt, and I googled him, and his official public height listing is five foot nine, which means that in real man numbers, that might actually be even shorter than five nine. But um, Antonio is short, and now we know. I mean, he's <laughs> Zaro. I would never have known until this film. <laughs> Well, I didn't, I wasn't paying attention to the Tom Cruise thing. And then, of course, we were reading the Wikipedia after and I was like, oh, yes, of course, that makes sense. Because there are a number of scenes where they're walking next to each other and they... Well, I think the magic of Tom Cruise is like, even though everyone in the world at this point knows that Tom Cruise is short, he can provide the illusion of tallness. Well, he's just so magnetic. 
Yeah. That it, like... He is a true movie star. Whereas in Tony Banderas, you stand him next to Brad Pitt and you're like, okay, man's short now. (laughs) Yeah. No, he too is just tremendous in this movie. He strolls in for like maybe 20 minutes and is just, I mean, talk about Cam. At that point, I was like, and Tony Banderas is obviously fantastic in this. And also you're just like, why are you going for Brad? Because Brad is so shit. And Tony Banderas shows up as this, like, first of all, he is Antonio Banderas, which is like already several points in his favor. Amazing wig. The wig situation oh. is fantastic. And he's like, yes, I'm 400 years old. And I'm the most wise and experienced, passionate uh, European vampire alive. But you're so beautiful. And then you pan around to Brad Pitt. And it's like, he is beautiful, but that is his only positive trait. <laughs> I mean, did you have friends growing up? circa like Ocean's Eleven who like liked boys because let me tell you Brad Pitt was the only movie star who anyone cared about like he he just yeah I just didn't have any Brad Pitt friends like I had oh my I had an Orlando Bloom friend which is yeah I mean that was that was also a thing I mean obviously I was aware of Brad Pitt but like I did not have any friends who were into him see I he was the first person I think I was aware of as like a movie star. Like I knew who all the Lord of the Rings people were obviously and like was obsessed with them, but they weren't, they were like in a different category, right? Because that they were fa- like famous. No, in I mean, my when I think for of contemporary movie stars, thing. I think that like Brad Pitt and George Clooney are the, the, the movie stars. Like that's them. exactly. And spe- especially when we were like 13, 14, he was the person. And then like Clooney too, but if you're like as a 13, 14 year old girl, like George Clooney's such an adult. Yeah, he's old. not yeah. right. Whereas Brad Pitt, even though we were too young to be aware of him at his like true, like youthful beauty peak, like he's just more accessible, I think, to yeah. like younger girls, or at least was at that time. And I swear to God, every single person I knew was obsessed with him. Just, it was universal. And I think at the time this was made, too, like, he was pretty early in his career, but he just appeared like a bolt of lightning in Hollywood. Yeah, like, actually, he was such a phenomenon. I'm very curious, because, like, the thing is that although Morgan loves some gothic fiction, and I personally am a certified, full-on, full-blooded, lifelong goth, um, neither of us are really Lestat people, and also neither of us were, like, around at this point in time. So if any listeners were fully aware of the Vampire Lestat period, like in the mid-90s, if you were one of the people who watched this film when it came out or you were really into the books, please message us. Send us an email, the Overinvested Podcast email. We would love to hear the personal experiences of the first-hand Lestat fans. So let us know. Yes, I'm really curious about this because one of the things that I said to my friend when we were watching this was, how was this received at the time? Well, like, this I would thing, just like this is the twilight know. of the nineties, but I feel yeah. like we were cheated, right? Because like this is so much better than Twilight. Which, FYI, we will actually be watching very soon. Morgan and I will be live recording. We will be doing <laughs> one of our little kind of uh, audio uh, thingies. Yeah, sorry, I've I've had several glasses of wine tonight after watching <laughs> *Into the Vampire*. I've forgotten words. Um, just FYI, uh, but yeah, we will be watching Twilight very soon, and um. We're looking forward to it, but uh, Interview with the Vampire is better, I think. Even though this film is like, it's very, it, it lacks in female characters, and I would very much enjoy a version of this which was female led. 
Well, this is the thing about this movie that is kind of intriguing to me, is that in many ways it is extremely offensive. And I, like, warned my friend before we started watching it. Um, I was like, just FYI, there's some bad stuff in this film. So, like, the first 20, 25 minutes take place in New Orleans, and Brad Pitt's character, like, owns a plantation, and therefore... But, you know, I was like, this is really, like, almost like a bold move to just fully admit that, like, your white protagonist, who is a rich person in the 19th cent- 18th century, has a plantation. I was like, what the fuck? I was, like, well, shocked. But- I was like, I can't believe... But there was no moral judgment. They were like, oh, this is fine. No, <laughs> no. Just- they never address it. No. They never do. And then it's poor Tandy Newton shows up and is like, master... Everyone is so worried about you after he's been turned into a vampire. And, like, they're afraid something's going on. Like, they're afraid of you now. And we were like, as opposed to before, when everyone was so happy, right? Like, it is so bad. And then, of course, he kills really, her. Yeah, and, like, course. I mean, and also, the thing ooh. is, also, like, Tandy Newton is, like, in the credits at the beginning. And I'm like, oh, Tandy Newton's here. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I was assuming she would have a larger role. <laughs> God. Uh-huh. So that is all very unfortunate. And then subsequently, like Kirsten Dunst has a great role in this, but she is obviously a child. And, and also the wild thing about Kirsten Dunst in this is like her, I would actually say her performance outstrips Brad Pitt's performance in this film. Oh, by yeah, far. For sure. Like she yeah. is, she is, I don't know. I think this is like her first major film role and yes. she is really freaking good in this. Like, you know, like quite a lot of the time you will, you will see a movie that is relatively corny and the script is corny. You can see like an actor and you're like, this actor's performance outstrips the role they've been given. And in this case, it's literally like a 12 year old. And she is delivering lines that are not good. And she is doing it with, like, real pizzazz. I have a lot of respect for Kristen Dunst. I mean, I've always loved her and I've always been right. And she proved it at a very young age. (laughs) But, like, she is really fun. And that character, even if a lot of the dialogue is bad, definitely, like, has a personality and, like, has stuff going on. Much more so than Brad Pitt's character. But all of the other women, literally all of the other women in this movie are just... Like bodies to be murdered. It is bad. There's one particular scene near to the end of the movie where the woman winds up without her clothes on in a way that is extremely disgusting, and it's like, it's it's really unfortunate. At the same time, like not to excuse the movie for these things, but it is so profoundly unself-aware and so dated <laughs> and so dumb that like watching it. Like, I personally, like, certain scenes definitely made me kind of, like, uncomfortable or or irritated, but I wasn't getting, like, massively offended or upset because I was just like, this is so I was not offended. It's like, the only point where, like, that part of my brain was, like, going off was when I was like, it's pretty wild that, like, he's a slave owner. (laughs) But then, like, for all the parts where he was, like, mistreating women in general, I was sort of like, you know what? (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's, I know the level we're on right now. Um, and it was very, it was so interesting to, like, watch through the lens of someone who's read like, several generations retroactively of fanfic. Because it was, like, so indicative of this sort of generation of fanfic that's written by, like, straight women with internalized sexism, you know? <laughs> and this was, like, the kind of the, the cultural touchstone of that, like, genre. <laughs> yes. 
Well, this is the thing about the homoeroticism in the movie, right? Oh so my god. The, my the, feeling like, about direction the movie... wise, it is like the horniest film. Watching this tonight, we were just like the first couple of scenes, we were like, this oh my god. Like just It was the the faces enclosing upon one another. It was there was a lot happening. I mean, literally the first time two guys encounter each other, Tom Cruise just like goes in on his neck, lifts him up into the sky, and then is like basically like have you had enough like and i was like towards the end i was like obviously because it's the 90s like you're not gonna have in like a blockbuster mainstream maybe you're not gonna have like men kissing but i was like it was so fucking stupid that they're not kissing at this point because it was like we know what the whole film is about and it just seems like insultingly stupid that you don't have them like anyway anyway (laughs) so this is what's so interesting about it I am I'm of the view that the people making it broadly are like taking it seriously, which is funny because it is not serious. However, I think that they 100% know how gay it is. Like they're like there's no explanation for this movie if they do not know what they're doing in that arena, right? Where like what Anne Rice thinks I mean, she's doing is another are, question like, entirely. Above each other. But like yeah, no, it's impossible. Antonio Banderas's character makes no sense. If he's not trying to seduce Brad Pitt, like literally textually, it doesn't like it is not, there's no logical explanation for his behavior. If that's not his end game. Right. But I kept kind of thinking about like, people have written about this. Um, I, I couldn't point it to an article because um, it's been just sort of like in the cultural conversation for a while, but like the recent trend of like having, one really superficial queer character in a blockbuster movie or saying after the fact like in a jk rowling sort of fashion that like oh yeah that person is actually bisexual like that person is actually gay without like having it in the mm-hmm. text which like people have complained about but i have read stuff and i think that's that i think is really persuasive that obviously everyone wants more representation but like that kind of representation is not very productive and that actually there's something weirdly more satisfying about the like old school insane subtext media like this this, right i think a lot about in terms of just to go slightly off topic but star trek because um, in the context of star trek like in the contemporary star trek we've got to the point where like it's the first point where they're permitted essentially to have explicitly queer characters so the new Star Trek has, there's a gay couple in the main cast and in the secondary cast you have like some people who are queer or whatever. But then it's like very much in the kind of, it's presented and also like marketed in terms of interviews is like they have conversations where it's like, it's really exciting that we finally have like these characters who are allowed to be out and gay in the Star Trek franchise, which is really important. And I also like agree with them saying that it's really important. But then if you go kind of 15 years back to Deep Space Nine, the content that you see in Deep Space Nine while they're not allowed to go and have a publicity interview about how a character is gay, they are exploring kind of themes that are much more sort of deep and complex. You know, they have like they have relationships which are subtextual and therefore not representative in the modern sense. But they also have like a main character who they go through like multiple genders because it's like a character that inhabits different characters' bodies and it's like they are able to explore many more themes because they have less sort of creative freedom which is often the case in like any kind of situation where the restrictions given to you by someone else creatively mean that you have to like force yourself to do something that's like more interesting so it's kind of like that in my opinion 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole story of the Hayes Code, right? And, like, yeah. any kind of censorship, which is the paradox of, you know, like, the history of cultures. Obviously, you don't want censorship. Yeah, and the Hayes Code things, is a really good example. Right. You, like, you don't... And, like, certain things then just, like, didn't make it into movies at all, which is bad. But then once the production code went away... And then also there was the Red Scare and there are a bunch of reasons, but like there were a solid like 15 years of movies that were just like bad. <laughs> and then everyone kind of then like you had New Hollywood and we don't need to get into it, but it, it's a weird conundrum of like, I think it kind of takes a while for people to figure out like how to talk about things they haven't been able to talk about. I mean, in, with this, you know, like, like, I feel like, the, sense. like weirdly, like nowadays, I guess the equivalent would be something like, um, like the man from uncle where there's a very sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, sort of self-aware sense of homoeroticism, which in some ways I'm like, this is awkward. Like it's awkward and it's embarrassing. And also it's made by straight people, like by a large, like obviously the creative team, who knows? But like, whereas with this, I feel like this is in some ways like more just like sincere because they've yeah. gone like it's so kind of intense of like romantic over the top romanticism well right because now with something like man from uncle and like obviously guy Ritchie's entire filmography is like that exact dynamic i mean honestly we would love way. to just if it was possible for morgan and i to have a podcast where we do a very old-fashioned freudian psychoanalysis interview <laughs> with guy Ritchie. oh my god <laughs> like just trap him in like one of those little rooms with the padded like audio walls and be like tell us your views on the genders <laughs> i would just oh what i would give what i would give for that opportunity um but because there is more like cultural awareness which is good people are now expecting things to be talked about and so then instead of just doing the thing there's this sort of like irony stuff that happens. And in 1994, I can only assume that like the mainstream media was not writing articles about this movie being like, oh, look, it's so gay. <laughs> That's not, you know. And so they're weirdly freer to just go like all out, weirdly over the top sincere about it, which then has the strange effect of becoming like hilarious. <laughs> like structurally speaking, it's kind of fascinating because it is... It is very much a romance, but it's also like a romance in the sense of sort of um, this type of young adult twilighty fantasy novel where there's just like all these incredible men that are obsessed with the main character who has no personality traits and is not worth it. So they're like passionately after him, including Lestat. And then you get, but then when you get to like the final denouement, it's like, well, he's still not deserving so you've just like going off into the sunset but it also like really works like the final scenes of this movie i was like punching the air excited by how like fu- how fun and silly it is because tom cruise is just like so into it <laughs> i mean let's just talk about tom cruise for a moment because we've talked about Brad Pitt, but we've only glancedly <sighs> discussed tom cruise i have become like weirdly obsessed with tom cruise in the past year he's become a fascination of mine he was used to be so much fun it, Scientology has so much to answer for because he's so boring now, at least in terms of his performance. Yeah, you see, this is the, this is the thing. Like, I I think that it's actually like, first of all, I think you're right, but also I feel like he's not inconsistent um, because the thing that Tom Cruise has is like complete, all encompassing passion, and like 
until the late 90s, early 2000s, where he took more interesting roles. Like he was taking roles like this, right? And then the closer you get to the present day, like he got to this point where, I mean, A, he was like, his Scientology level is like increasing and that makes him like a very disturbing, toxic presence in Hollywood. But like also his sort of like his public persona, he's very keen to create himself as this sort of like traditionally masculine action hero guy, but like in a very sort of neutral, all-American sexless way. He wants to just sort of be like acceptable but also his internal like passion always shines through. Like, and also that's his thing, right? Like he tries really hard. So like this year, the big movie he did was like Mission Impossible 6 or 7 or whatever the fuck number it was. And like, it's an incredible movie. And that's partly because like he tries so fucking hard. But then when you're watching a movie like this, it's like the same level of try hard, but it's for a fun role where you've given him this role where it's like Tom Cruise, please give us your normal 110% to play like a 19th century histrionic gay vampire. And it's like, that is so much more fun than if he is giving that same level of like Nick Cage percentage, but it's like, okay, you're playing this guy who really wants to save the world from a Russian spy. And it's like, I don't give a shit. Put him back in the fucking cape. Come on. Well, he got into Scientology in the late 90s, I think. And so it was all downhill from there, basically. The last movie he did that was really interesting, I think. I mean, I I have not seen even close to all of Tom Cruise's movies, but like Mm -hmm. he did Magnolia in, I think, 99. And that was basically like the end for that. But you are totally right that his vibe forever has just been like crazy eyes. Like that is the consistent performance trait of his career is just like the crazy eyes thing at a certain point in this movie i turned around my friend when he was doing something and i was like there it is like so fucking hard no i've just looked up his like his filmography recently and it's like so he has done dozens of essentially like mainstream action-ish action adventure movies right um, for basically the past 15 years, Minority Report is the last one that's like conceptually interesting. Like War of the Worlds, he's done a few Mission Impossibles, but like everything he's done has been dull as hell. And I include Edge of Tomorrow, but Morgan's right, like Magnolia 1999 is like the last film he did that was sort of like a dramatically interesting role, which is really fascinating, who has that kind of like international star power. Yeah. And you watch this movie. And it is so clear. And like, he's still very much a movie star. Like the large part of the reason why Mission Impossible works is that even in his like weird, like compressed state almost, he is very compelling. And like watching him try to kill himself doing stunts is uh, entertaining. But watching him in a, one of the old roles like this, or like I watched Top Gun with this same friend for the first time recently and was just like, oh my God. But like, like this movie, this movie cost $70 million. Tom Cruise cost $10 million. Yeah. He was a movie star in like a way that doesn't really exist anymore. Capital letters, movie star. And it's really fascinating to watch because it's not like we don't have performers who are super charismatic and like thrilling to watch and can get people to go to movies you know at the movie theater anymore but i genuinely don't think it it exists in the same way anymore no the the star power definitely like when i was watching this film like the star power absolutely doesn't exist because 
like nothing is that centralized anymore probably because of the internet but like when I was watching this and I was thinking what would I like to see in terms of the like the tonal remake in terms of performance style Anne Hathaway or Natalie Portman would be like perfecto for this level of over like oh I'd love to see like Anne Hathaway doing like a like a horny evil vampire role like this it would be so good I mean, she did Catwoman, which is like the closest. She did, thing but like her Catwoman was like it was by Christopher Nolan, who like doesn't. Yes, I mean he doesn't have a horny bone in his body, so no. to speak. No. But like, I mean, you know, she was doing her best. Yes, but I, I mean, I think Portman would have to be it. As I love Anne Hathaway's, no, no shade on her at all. But I feel like Portman has more of the um, lunacy, manic. lunacy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Portman's got the lunacy factor. Hmm. But it's just, it's just so much fun watching someone act this nuts in such a masterful way. Like, he's just so good and so much fun. And because he is the one thing in the movie that is actually supposed to be that way. Mm. Like, the rest of the movie is really, really fun and entertaining in, I think, a pretty much accidental way. Except for Antonio Banderas, who is definitely playing camp on purpose. Oh, um, God, he's good at this. <laughs> whereas Tom Cruise, every time he's in a scene, is just doing something batshit, and it's supposed to be batshit and funny. And, like, it's just so good. <laughs> His finale is just, oh, God, it's so, it's, it's so much. And, like, the music choice as well. The last scene of this movie... As much as I've been sitting here being like, this movie is inadvertently, you know, like stupid and funny. The last scene of this movie is perfect. But also, I feel it's like part good. of the reason why like it works so well is like, at some point in the film, you have to just like fully acknowledge that every single one of the main characters, with the potential exception of Kirsten Dunst, but all of the characters are like really fucking stupid. Like they're fucking, <laughs> like, like Brad Pitt is without a doubt the dumbest. He is full on Derek Zoolander, but like, Tom Cruise is really dumb as well because like Lestat's been like oh I really feel like I want like an immortal soulmate so I'm just gonna pick someone who's like a depressed attractive goth but like no further analysis into whether they're like you're like you have the option to like scope them out and pick a smart one no you're gonna pick the worst and dumbest one with no self-awareness and then it's like you have made your bed laying on it and the same thing happens and it's like fucking Antonio Banderas is like I'm sure he must be smart because he's lived for like 400 years but he still takes one look at Brad Pitt and it's like oh, he's so handsome though just uh, they're so dumb they're so dumb oh my god it's just it's great it's really great it's sort of a, a incredible relic of the 90s in, in a beautiful yeah. way you watch it and it's you just think, yep, this is this is the 90s film culture. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, the thing is, like, the, of the kind of, like, the, the mid to late 90s goth mainstream cinema was, like, truly a gift. Because I feel like nowadays there is no such thing. Like, there's no equivalent. But it's like, you have this, you have, like, The Crow, you have The Matrix. And all of them are, like, so good and so dumb. But in such, like, a really satisfying, like, visceral way, you're just like, I respect it so much. The craft was around that the time craft. too, and all of them have like a really powerful queer subtext, yep. which I respect as well. I mean, that's also very in keeping with like the gothic mode from oh, one knows forever. <laughs> <laughs> like, yep, <laughs> and I guess um, um, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah, 
which we did an was... in-depth episode on because we both have a passion for that <laughs> well i was messaging another friend of ours about this because i guess think she saw you tweeting about it and was like oh i really should see that and i was like you should because it's hilarious yeah like, like i mean I between seen... the because like with this it's like i feel like in terms of artistic quality in this film obviously like tom cruise's performance is great but it is in much many things like the costumes the makeup especially are good um the music i think is the part of this which i find the most kind of unironically appreciative of like the music in this like the score is very good um but if you go over to bram stoker's dracula it's fucking great like there's literally no downside apart from like obviously keanu reeves's accent is like dodge but i don't (laughs) care like it doesn't matter bram stoker's dracula is a fucking masterpiece so um watch that have a few drinks as i did and then watch this yeah so she suggested like double billing them because she hasn't seen either and i was like that would be amazing because this is and hilarious make sure you have them the right way right <laughs> watch dracula oh. first the good film <laughs> <laughs> yeah um that should be your halloween double bill it's free advice from us i think that that that's all i have to say yeah i think we're good this yeah. Happy Halloween, everyone. Yes. So next week, we will be doing another goth movie, uh, which you have seen, but I have not, which is the new Suspiria film by Buenavino. Uh I am really, really pumped. Oh, I'm, I'm excited because like there's been extraordinarily mixed responses to this. And I have no way of predicting what Morgan's reaction to this movie will be. I think I'm going to like it based on just intuition, but we shall see. I'm re- I'm really excited. So yeah, that will be, that will be coming soon. Uh, thank you so much as ever for listening to this episode. Um, if you want more fun content from us, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Otherwise, you can find us at our website, overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.